everyone, and welcome to the Stroke Special Interest Group Podcast. I'm your host and fellow physical therapist, Jackie Lochelle. Today, we will be discussing a topic that even the most specialized and seasoned neuro-PTs may not have a good grasp on, helping patients find a device for seated mobility. Today, we will speak with Dr. Jenneth Bertstein, PT, DPT, ATP, slash SMS. Jenneth is a physical therapist based in Atlanta, Georgia. Prior to joining Promobile, she worked at the Shepherd Center, focusing her time in the seating and wheelchair mobility clinic. Jenneth completed her master's in physical therapy at North Georgia College and State University and her transitional DPT at the University of Texas Medical Branch. Jenneth has presented at national and international conferences such as RESNA, ISS, International Seating Symposium, LASS, Latin American Seating Symposium, and APTA Next and CSM conferences. Jenneth joined Promobile as a clinical education manager for the Central Region in 2016 and started as the clinical affairs manager in November of 2021. Thank you very much, Dr. Bernstein, for being here. We really appreciate it, and we're excited to hear about this. The first question is, where do we get started in this process? So with a thousand-foot view, what do I as a clinician need to do? Who needs to be involved? How long will this process take? from hospital discharge to getting the chair and being able to use the chair in the community? Of course, everything is, it depends, right? Depends on a few factors. I mean, the biggest role that the PT can have is early identification of the need for mobility equipment. So the sooner that you can screen or look, you know, evaluate the person to see if they need a piece of mobility equipment, the better. The other thing to consider is the type of equipment that you're thinking they may need. If they need it for a very short term, you know, post um, total knee replacement, a total hip replacement, that's going to be a different path than if someone is going to function from a wheelchair and that's going to be their primary means of mobility. That kind of goes down what we call complex rehab technology or CRT. From the time of the evaluation, this is the easiest question way to answer. From the time that you evaluate someone for a customized wheelchair, which is on that CRT path, you're looking at about a 60 to 90 day process, depending on the insurance. Most of that time is waiting for insurance approval. Of course, given supply chain issues, we don't know if that could change based on the manufacturer at any point in time, but the insurance process usually is what takes the longest. So once someone's evaluated for customized equipment, It's about a 60 to 90 day process. And then the earlier you identify that need, you know, obviously the faster that goes. So most cases you're not going to receive your customized equipment prior to an inpatient discharge. I know we're going to talk about loaner equipment later on, and that's where that kind of fills the gap between going, you know, discharge and getting customized equipment. If you are in the hospital setting and you think someone's going to need possibly some type of device, it's beneficial, it seems, to reach out and try to to start that insurance connection so that the process can be quicker since that's the most long process. Absolutely. I would say it's a lot easier to tell the team that you're going to work with, which I know the different team members, it's a lot easier to say, oh, they don't need this wheelchair anymore, cancel that order than it is to say they're 
we got an update from their length of stay approval and they're leaving tomorrow. So right. it's definitely definitely better to start early if you think that someone is going to need to go home with wheeled mobility. So how does a therapist go about locating and meeting with local stakeholders? A big part of this 60 to 90 day process is going to be done by your team member, I, I say, is uh, your ATP or your assistive technology professional. And some people will call that person will work for an equipment provider. You might hear the term supplier or vendor or dealer, uh, but I like to use the term equipment provider. Um, they are really going to be critical in being your partner in this process because they help all the paperwork, all the billing, and they actually are the ones that order the equipment. And so where I would recommend to start if you're looking to find out who is a good ATP in your area is you can go to resna.org, R-E-S-N-A.org. Resna stands for Rehab Engineering and Assistive Technology Society of North America. And they actually have a way to like find an ATP because it's a certification that we have to have to say that we have this experience with seating and mobility. So you could search like by your zip code and find someone near you. You could reach out to AT APTA special interest group for AT and, and seating and wheel mobility. There's also something called the clinician task force that you can look for local resources. There's also manufacturer websites where you can find the representatives by zip code. And then also you can think the insurance companies are going to have lists of approved providers in your area based on your zip code as well. Do you think those approved providers will give you a, head, a leg up in the process of being approved? You know, that's kind of hard to say because it really varies by location. There's national providers who have more people to help with the process, but there's independent yeah. providers that, you know, maybe have someone that they can call one-on-one -on -one a little bit easier. So it, it really depends on where you're located. I know that guidelines in specifics will be very insurance dependent, but are there any general guidelines for coverage slash what the process is for Medicare rental, loaner chairs, et cetera? It really used to be that all insurances followed Medicare guidelines because Medicare was kind of the most restrictive and they wanted you to make sure that you were always ruling out the least costly device. So if someone can walk with a walker and it's functional and safe, then they don't need to pay, purchase, or approve a wheelchair. And so Medicare used to always be the most restrictive and then private insurance would follow suit. But that's not always the case anymore. We are seeing private insurance companies take even more additional steps to deny equipment. State Medicaid, they are all gonna have their own fee schedule, it's called, to determine what they pay for and how much they would reimburse the equipment provider. But the nice thing about Medicaid is you can submit anything. So they can't just do a blanket denial because you have multiple sclerosis, because you've had a stroke. They can't deny you based on just your diagnosis or age. So you can always submit for it and see what happens. So Medicare typically sets the tone for what's approved and what's not, but private insurances can vary from being better coverage or worse coverage. There are about three categories that I'm aware of right now that are considered to be 
paid on a rental basis. So that is a lightweight manual wheelchair or a K4. That's a power assist device, push rim activated power assist wheelchair and a manual tilt and space wheelchair. So that means that the provider is paid monthly for the cost of that equipment. And if for some reason the person no longer needs the device, of course, those payments would stop. The equipment would be returned. This is a question you might not know. Do you know if there is I know for the for the diagnosis of ALS, there are funds that specifically loan equipment to people with a certain diagnosis. Do you know of any of these organizations offhand? Yeah, for loaner equipment, I mean, the equipment provider would always be the good place to start for loaner equipment, as well as the manufacturer. But for um, ALS specifically, they, they will have a loaner closet. Sometimes the equipment provider manages that loaner closet mm -hmm. for the ALS association in that area. So that's why I say, oh, it's always good to start with the equipment provider. Okay. There are some like muscular dystrophy groups that will provide loaner equipment. I've heard of some centers within each state. There's assistive technology centers that are required to mm -hmm. have equipment, but that tends to be more like communication devices and not so much like complex wheelchairs. So yeah, I would say the ALS Association and the ALS loaner closets are usually your loaner location, but your equipment provider, while someone is in the process of getting equipment, they also provide loaner chairs, regardless of your diagnosis. It's just that with, as you said, with ALS, you need yeah. it a little bit more expedited. You touched on this a little bit. Can we talk more about the general classifications of wheelchairs? So K levels, manual assist, power chairs, tilt slash recline equipment, etc. This is all based on Medicare HICPIC codes. So mm -hmm. manual wheelchairs have, what, like you said, K codes. So K1 through, we'll just stick with K1 through five for now. The other six and seven have to do with heavy duty and, and tilt in space. Mm -hmm. But as you go one through five, that really has to do with the amount of customization and adjustability that you can have on a chair. So if you picture a K1 is like a chair you can go buy on the aisle of CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, you can just pick that up. It would, it's one size fits all. You get what you get. No color choice, no size choice. Mm -hmm. A K2 is similar, but it's typically lower to the ground, which was actually has typically been called a Hemi height wheelchair, which for people post CBA that need to have their feet on the ground, they had to have a different type of frame to lower themselves down enough to get their foot to contact to propel. And then a K3, you start to get maybe a little bit more sizing differences and a little lighter weight in terms of the materials it's made out of and how heavy it is to lift it and put it in the car. But then a K4 is where you'll have like height adjustable armrest. Maybe you'll have maybe one or two different colors to choose from. You can even get like in between sizes. And then a K5 is really where we want anybody who's propelling a wheelchair for full-time mobility. All the other chairs are more for short-term, you know, in case of emergency kind of chairs. Yeah. They're not something that you'd want to propel all the time. And that's because the K5, it's called an ultra lightweight chair. 
So it is lighter weight than the other ones. But the biggest thing is the adjustment of the rear wheel on the frame of the chair. So what that does is by moving that rear wheel forward, it makes the chair easier to push and reduces the strain on the shoulders. The K5 is the one that's the most customizable for different sizes. So that's why it's typically recommended if someone's gonna be in that chair full time for functional mobility, that that's where you wanna be. Power wheelchairs are in groups from one through five. And a group one is going to be your more off the shelf version all the way up to a group four, which is your more customized and outdoor version. And then a, there's also group five. So group one is like a scooter. Again, something you could buy off the shelf. You could buy off online. You don't even need a doctor's prescription to buy it. A group two is a wheelchair that looks just kind of like it has that same scooter seat, but it turns a little bit tighter and has like six wheels on the ground instead of like a long wheelbase like a scooter does. Group Three wheelchairs are typically where you're going to be for someone with a neurological diagnosis because they can have more power seat functions, different types of ways to control it. The chair, you can power ventilators, you can power communication devices. A group four is reserved typically for higher speed motors, wider chairs under Medicare guidelines is considered an outdoor device but it's not really like an all-terrain device. It just means that yeah. it's a little bit more stable on inclines. It can go faster. It's probably a little wider and a little longer. And then you have pediatric power wheelchairs that are group five power wheelchair. And we didn't talk about power assist yet. <laughs> power assist is its own code. So it's technically pushroom activated power wheelchairs. And then there's another type of code, I'd have to look it up, that is a power add-on, which is where you add a joystick to a manual wheelchair. Typically, most, if you're talking Medicare, they only pay for power assist wheels, not the joystick add-on, but other insurance companies may pay for that add-on. And would somebody who is ATP slash SMS certified know about these possible add-ons? I had no idea that you could have both on it. That's really, I mean, that's very, very yes. helpful for a lot of people. Absolutely. Your equipment provider is what I call your equipment expert. They are the ones that typically have the more direct communication with all the manufacturers to know what's up to date, what's typically funded, what could be benefit to guide you through that decision-making process. So you know the person, you know the body, and then they tell you the equipment and you kind of come together to decide what with the person, obviously, what's going to work best. How do you structure an exam? How much time does it generally take? Who is involved and what positions does a patient need to get into? And the big money question is, what can I bill for or can I bill for anything during that hour? So structuring an exam, I usually try to tell therapists that don't have a lot of experience in seating and mobility that it is very similar to a typical initial evaluation but you're going to add a few things to think to say your review of systems like if you're looking at sensation of someone you don't want to just look at the bottom of their feet you need to see every area that is going to come in contact with the sitting surface like if you're looking at range of motion it doesn't matter if i can do a 120 degrees straight leg raise because that's not how i sit in a wheelchair mm -hmm. i need to find someone's hip flexion 
right? And then see how much knee extension they have once they're in, in the range of motion of their hip that they can tolerate. So it really is very similar. You have all the skills to evaluate the medical history, look at the surgical history, look at your impairments and limitations, your review of systems, prior level of function and goals for level of function, sensory evaluation and range of motion, manual muscle testing, spasticity. And then the probably the biggest thing that, separ that would separate out a, a typical PT eval is your MAT evaluation is what we call it, which is where you're really looking at someone's posture and that does take you know a little bit of time to just get familiar with some of your bony landmarks but you that usually happens both in a sitting position and a supine position so having like a mat table available or some type of firm surface so that you can really get your hands on the pelvis see how much flexibility they have that's going to be critical in helping you to understand what adjustments and what settings you might need within the wheelchair from there you would proceed to more of the equipment focused evaluation portion so how much time <laughs> that you're allotted is it's really going to be influenced by your the facility or the location where where you're working i will say that at some facilities they're very fortunate where they can actually have the pt do the whole evaluation what we just talked about and then come back for the equipment portion where then then they would have the equipment provider bring in two or three chairs to try they would take all the measurements then and kind of do that separately where i've worked before it was typically evaluation in one to two hours but if we felt that we couldn't get through it and we didn't get a chance to provide opportunities to try equipment we would have the person come back in for billing of those when you're just seeing someone and that's all you're doing as like an outpatient, it's just built as a PT evaluation code, which is the non-timed code 971612 or 3, I think, based on the complexity. And then if you bring someone back, you can bill a time treatment code, which is wheelchair skill training 97542. So 97542 is your timed code that you can use for additional wheelchair skill training sessions, for equipment trials, and also for fitting and training at, and at delivery. And so that is nice because, you know, with a time treatment code is representative of the actual time that you spent with someone versus that eval code that could be two hours and you still get a set rate. So as far as some facilities will have the treating therapist perform all of like the range of motion, the spasticity, and then the seating therapist, or maybe like a specialist come in and just take the measurements. And so as far as billing, the primary therapists typically would, if they're going to charge for the whole session, then the seating therapist wouldn't charge, right? So only one person can charge at a time. Yes. So if there's two therapists involved, you could split the charges or I'm not sure exactly how that would work at <laughs> each facility, uh, but obviously there's a, can only be one PT charge for that set that's, time that you work yes. with someone. What major parts and measurements should I be thinking about? So seating, leg rest, back, arm rest, breaks, and supports. One thing just that I think is important to know is that there's going to be measurements of the person that you need to take. And then you will apply those to the measurement of the wheelchair. 
So it doesn't always mean that because their leg measures 22 inches long that you need a 22 inch long wheelchair. And a lot of these measurements, you know, you can work with your equipment provider to understand the best way to take these measurements or obviously a, seat, a therapist specializing in seating and mobility. So I think that's the first thing is just to understand, measure the person first and then understand how that would apply to the wheelchair measurements. So a couple of key measurements would be width, depth, seat to floor height. If it's a manual wheelchair, center of gravity and then if it's a manual wheelchair also back angle width i think is the biggest thing that i like to debunk because all those years ago when i was in school we learned to basically put your hands on the outside of someone's greater chokes and we're and basically add two inches to whatever that width is we definitely do not teach that anymore, especially in complex rehab. We want the chair to actually fit the person so that they can use that chair for function. They can use, if they have trunk muscles, they can kind of use the chair to help them steer. Um, we don't want to give them room for their hips to migrate, right? If your chair is too wide, your body is going to find the path of least resistance and yeah. you can get a postural asymmetry and then you also typically are going to have less proximal stability or less core stability because your pelvis is sliding around everywhere so that's just a little bit on width obviously you don't want it too narrow because you don't want to create a pelvic rotation or any skin problems but we, I typically like to say you want a snug fit, yeah. <laughs> so you don't want it too, it's like princess and the pea, not too tight, not too, too totally, wide, totally. but you, it, it's soft tissue, right? Especially for seat width. So something can touch soft tissue. It just can't squeeze the soft tissue. And then seat depth, which is like the measurement from like the backrest to the end of the chair in the front, like where your cushion would go. That is one of the biggest measurements and then seat to floor height because that can determine if someone's foot propelling how well they can foot propel it can determine how well they can access the wheels and then in power chair giving enough room for the lower leg length getting under tables maybe getting under minivans so depending on your equipment you might have just front seat to floor height for a power chair for a manual chair you're typically going to have a front and a rear seat to floor height what are some comorbidities that i should know when I'm doing this evaluation? You know, one of the major things is pressure injuries, right? We know that that is one of the best ways to reduce sepsis, reduce rehospitalization, and reduce long-term disability and ultimately resulting in death. And so I think the priority for comorbidities are anything that puts someone at high risk for skin impairment first. So nutrition, smoking, diabetes, anything that would impede blood flow to an area, those, and, and of course, loss of sensation be, due to any kind of acquired diagnosis like diabetes. Those are really critical comorbidities to focus on. As far as someone who might be like propelling themselves, you want to look at any area that would have repetitive strain so like the shoulders typically for someone self-propelling their with their upper extremities so you want to ask about you know pain discomfort and then also thinking about um, any respiratory complications that would prevent them from having the capacity to 
mobilize themselves and then I mean posture I guess I don't know if that's te technically a comorbidity but you want to look at any you know pre-morbid comorbidities pre-morbid postural impairments that would get worse when someone is now sitting I think for neurological diagnoses like a lot of people that have spinal cord injury may also have brain injury if they were in a traumatic accident and so thinking about how that might affect their ability to learn skills and cognition would be good to make note of as well. So posturally, I know there are some diagnoses that tend to have an acquired scoliosis. I don't know if that I don't know if that is a technical term. Can you make the seat customized to that? Yeah. So typically, when you're doing that MAD evaluation, you're looking for those postural asymmetries. And you're looking to see if they're what we call reducible, where you can physically bring them back to midline, um, uh, or if they're non-reducible, meaning like they could get worse, but also you can't straighten them out with all your might. And so there's kind of two approaches depending on if it's reducible, meaning you can move them around, then you can build something into the cushion, into the backrest to correct for that. Right, so you can change the course of that developing. If someone is already set in that position, think like hard end feel, right? If someone has a postural hard end feel, we have to accommodate for that in the chair and just prevent it from worsening. Because yeah. if we try to correct, we could create more pressure in a certain area, throw their balance off. So yeah, th those are kind of the two approaches depending on how movable <laughs> the person is to neutral. Next, we're going to talk about paperwork. So what is an LMN and are there forms that need to be filled out for this? There are forms that you'll have to fill out um, for equipment evaluation, even if it's just for a cushion or a component of a chair. There will be forms that you'll be asked to fill out. An LMN is called a letter of medical necessity. It might be called a letter of therapeutic justification, the LOMN, letter of medical necessity. There's two things that really make up an LMN. One is the PT evaluation portion, the review of systems, the posture eval, and then there's the justification section. And so that's where you really wanna be able to tie in your evaluation findings with what you're recommending. So for example, if you are going to recommend an angle adjustable footrest on a chair, mm -hmm. that should match your range of motion evaluation to show that they have decreased dorsiflexion, nice. right? So if you're saying I need something that adjusts the angle, then you have to say why. The justification section is kind of where you say, because of these evaluation findings, this is what they need. Depending on where you work or you know how you document that might be one single document or it could be two separate documents where you have your PT eval and then the justification portion. So it really just depends. It doesn't matter if it's in two parts, three parts, as long as it's all, all the information is there. But there are some nice forms available. One that's free of charge is Houston Methodist form, and we'll put the link in the show notes. I will say it is a, about an 11-page form, um, but remember that includes the PT eval and the justification. So if you have a separate way to do the actual eval part, you may not need this form. Typically, manufacturers will have these justifications to help you as well as some of your equipment providers. 
Well, one resource other than what the APTA special interest group has might be the Permobile LMN generator, permobilelmn.com. That can just have some macros. There's also things like LMN builders that can help to find out how to justify things. And then what needs to be justified is basically anything that's not included with the chair, anything that's outside of the no charge option. So for example, on a manual wheelchair, there's front wheels or casters, right? And so there's a standard type of caster that is essentially no charge, comes with the price of the, of the wheelchair. And then there's a, a soft roll caster, which is thicker, and wider and a little bit more durable. And if you need that for your client, you would have to justify that because it's it. kind of um, outside of what would be no charge. On these sheets, would it have a add-on and then provide an area for, okay, like tell me why you need this. Yes, exactly. You would, you would kind of itemize everything out and then write a reason for why you need each component. And in these components, is insurance looking for very specific information? So like a range of motion measurement or like, so we're thinking about ankle dorsiflexion. Yeah. Would you to include their specific range of motion or like they don't have functional range of motion? Or Yeah, you would just say due to decreased, you know, right Got. ankle dorsiflexion. But you do those justifications. You want to make sure that they are specific. To yeah. your client, because if you are using any kind of like LMN builder or any kind of template and say you have like this person is at risk for autonomic dysreflexia, but they've had a ischemic stroke and there's no such thing, you know, they're not going to have autonomic dysreflexia. It's going to be obvious that you copied that from somewhere, right? So make sure that it is specific to that individual, even though there are some like guidelines that you can use, it always needs to be specific to that individual. Next, let's talk about costs. So what do I tell the patient when they ask how much it costs? Really, the cost needs to have be a discussion with the equipment provider because they know the insurance they know the co-pays they know how much you know what the msrp is and what their cost related to the msrp is i encourage the therapist to have respect for the cost and kind of know a ballpark but you are going to lead with function right you're not the person's accountant but you have to be aware of some potential items that may or may not be covered by their insurance because you don't want to just present everything in the world and say mm -hmm. oh but you can't have it mm -hmm. but at the same time we don't know if they have a rich aunt sally somewhere that wants yeah. to buy them a thousand dollar wheels like, yeah so first and foremost when it comes to cost lead with what that person functionally needs then yeah. from there you have that conversation with the equipment provider to say which just like, let's think about those casters, right? Which one of the, these three casters would be covered by insurance? And they usually know that. Then we talk that over with the person, say this may be worth the investment for you. It may not. After the evaluation, can they provide a ballpark? Yes, I'll have to do an order form. And for some insurances, they have to do a detailed product description where every part has a price. And so before it's ordered, they should go over with the person what their copay might be, what their out-of-pocket costs may be, so that there's no surprises, you know, yeah, at delivery sure. day. 
once this is all submitted, am I done? Is there a follow-up? Is there a day when the device comes and I'm there as well? There are a few more steps. One is hopefully that submission leads to an approval, but if it doesn't, you might have to go through appeals and because of denials. So you, you may be asked to provide additional documentation along the way if it gets denied. If a lot of time has passed, that person may even have to come back in for a reevaluation. Oh, that's tough. Yeah. Do you find yourself asking people like, hey, it's been a long time. Like, how is it going? Have you, do you present differently now? Yeah. I mean, if you know that they have a diagnosis that could rapidly change, like a progressive diagnosis or really severe skin impairment or postural impairment, and it's been more than like, three to six months, you probably are going to want them to come back in, um, which is a hard conversation to have. But, um, you know, maybe with telehealth, some facilities could do that check in via telehealth as an option. But and then once it is approved, the best outcome is to have the therapist and the equipment provider together for that fitting, training, and delivery. That's how you really get the best outcome so that the therapist is looking at the body, posture, balance, function, Mm -hmm. transfers, mobility skills, while the equipment provider is making all the adjustments for the leg support, the back angle, training them how to charge the chair, how to clean the chair. So you really, it allows you to get the best outcome when you both are there to deliver the equipment. That's also how you learn what was useful, what decisions I made. And and that's how you can say in your plan of care, hopefully you set some goals for this equipment, right? And so you want to know, did they achieve those goals? Uh, So it's a good way to really not only learn for yourself what worked and what didn't work, but also be able to document that you successfully achieved what that equipment was supposed to. Any, anything else that you'd like to add that you haven't went over with us that you would like clinicians listening to know? We started talking a little bit about inpatient and what I would encourage if someone is in a rehabilitation facility where, you know, you do have longer time period with somebody, make seating and mobility part of your daily goals, part of your plan of care. Because from my experience, A lot of times we would see someone for their wheelchair evaluation and I wasn't the therapist that saw them day to day. Yeah. And I would say, you know, how's your cushion? Does it feel stable? Does it feel, do you have sensation? Does it feel comfortable? What do you think about it? Can you transfer? And they're like, oh, you mean there's other options? And so what I would love is for therapists to make it part of their weekly check-in. Like, do they, do I need to lower the back angle because their balance is better? Do I need to try a different cushion because they are developing an asymmetry in their posture? So I think that's one of my biggest encouragements for therapists. And then also recognizing that like, this is a specialty probably within two or three different specialties. And so it's okay to not know what you're Mm -hmm. doing in the beginning, but you have the skills to figure it out. And then also we are really starting to see that walking does not have to be at all costs, that you really need to function on, focus on how someone is functional. So even if they can ambulate in therapy, even if they can ambulate with, you know, two AFOs and a walker and, and platform attachments and a, you know, bioness or electro stim, how are they going to wash the dishes? Like you can't wash your dishes if you're strapped into forearm 
crutches or strapped into uh, forearm attachments, right? So really thinking about, yes, it's a wheelchair, but that's not a failure. It can actually empower people to be more functional because they don't fall. They have more energy. They're not as tired. And so don't see wheeled mobility as like a form of failure. It can actually really help a lot of people. That's really helpful to frame, I think, especially I, I, so I work in New York City and I'm, that makes me think of people having a different ambulation means in the home as compared to in the community and that have being able to ambulate in the community, if it's by a wheelchair or power chair can really change somebody's quality of life. So that's pearl for clinicians to remember. Yes. Yes. Thanks again, Dr. Bernstein, for taking the time to speak with us today. And thanks everyone for tuning into this podcast. Please continue to look out for more of the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast on 8NPT Synapse, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.